You know, we have been going through this city, uh, series called um, Envision. And one of the things I've learned in growing up is the value of chairs. I, I, had, a, I had a grandpa, we called him Papa, and, and you know, you could sit anywhere at any time in his chair or what, not his chair at any given time, and, and he had no problem with it, but when it came time to eat, it was his chair. When it came time for breakfast, it was his chair. When it came time for anything around the food table, food-related, cards was different, but when it was time for food, it was his chair. I, I, I learned the value of, of chairs growing up. I learned the value of chairs in, in elementary school whenever they had reading groups. And there was this reading group over here, and they would read from the class level above our level. And then there would be this group over here, and all these chairs clustered together, and they would read on the same grade level. And then there would be another group of chairs over there, I wouldn't even make that group of chairs, but that's where I would belong, if anywhere. It would be in that group of chairs that was a grade below in the reading or something like that. I learned the value of chairs even in the sixth grade growing up whenever I decided to sign up for band. Uh, It got me out of school a little earlier, and it got me over to the junior high, and I was able to go to band at Oakdale and and, uh, play a trombone. Now, I cannot play a trombone to this day. I couldn't play it then, and I can't play it now. In fact, the only thing I know about a trombone is that there are seven stops on the trombone, okay? That's all I know. I can't even pucker my lips to play a trombone. Uh, But I I learned this also. There's chairs when it comes to that. There's first chair. There's second chair. And many times you, uh, 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 you advance in chairs related all in relation to your practice, your skill level, and I didn't practice at all. And so I was in the last chair. Whatever number that was, that was my chair when it came to the trombone. I did learn out, I did learn my sweet spot growing up, and I also realized even in this sweet spot of mine that there was a, an important chair, and that was in basketball. I learned early on that there was five guys who played basketball, but there's always a sixth guy. And if you're going to ride the bench, if you're going to be in any chair, you want to be right next to the coach. That is the next chair. That's the sixth chair. And if you come out of the game, you want to plop right back down in that chair. So hopefully when he's looking down the bench, he looks at you and he says, you're going into the game. You never want to be at the last chair whenever you're playing basketball. The value of a chair. They come into play in in, in so many arenas of our life. I even realized whenever I graduated from high school, that there were, there were certain chairs that were put on the stage, and some of my classmates got to sit in those chairs, and those that had doilies around their necks and, and had special honors given to them, that they were the valedictorian, they got to sit on the stage in a very special chair. These chairs symbolize something. There are chairs in our life, there are chairs that we, that we go through, and it was back in about, 19, about 1994, three or four, maybe 1994, 60,000 men were in Texas Stadium for a Promise Keepers rally, and I was in that group. It was my first and only large-scale rally that I ever went to. But John Maxwell shared a message, and he talked about three different chairs. And from that day forward, you know, you have, you, hopefully you have epic messages that, that you've heard in your life that change the course of your life, change your perspective on your life. And it was whenever he talked about the three different chairs and from Judges chapter 2, that it began to make it resonate in my heart. Because at this point, I was the father of one and another one on the way. And Lori and I, we didn't know exactly what it meant to raise children. But we did know what we wanted our product to look like at the end of 18 years or 21 years. We knew what we wanted them to look like. We just didn't know how to get from A to Z. We were just figuring it out as we went. But one of the things he shared, he said, these chairs are significant because you want your children to be in the first chair. 
The first chair is, is so important. It represents that, that hot, passionate element of, of who we are and that you're, you're hot for God and you're excited for God. And the first chair is where you want your children. It's where you want to be yourself. Second chair is not exactly the most desirable. Call it a lukewarm chair. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're just in a chair. You're kind of in the middle. You're kind of working your way through life. And this is where a lot of people find themselves. I will say the majority of people find themselves in a lukewarm chair. They're not hot. They're not cold. And it really plays out in life. And it really has repercussions. Hear me say that today. It has repercussions. And, of course, there's the last chair. And that last chair is the chair that it's just cold. It's disconnected. It's disjointed. It's not a part of the the game anymore. It's tired of playing the game. In fact, if you're in the third chair, you're probably sick of the whole church gig. You're sick of God and God's failed you and you've got just jacked up theology and understanding of who God is. But, you know, you might call yourself a Christian because you were generationally in the Christian line or you were christened or baptized or you went through some kind of class growing up. And you're in that third chair, but you're really, you're kind of disconnected. And I don't know how close you are. Maybe you're pretty close to the lukewarm, but maybe you're way, way over here. I don't know where you are, but you don't want to be in the third chair. I don't think anybody in this room wants to raise a generation in the third chair. But how do we, how do we see this digression? And, and, and I've said I've say it to us again, as I said last week, we as a church are at a point of inflection or deflection. We're at a point of seeing God do some amazing things or us slipping in, 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 into a, an unhealthy manner. The thing is, is that this whole chair analogy actually fits in every arena of life. If you look at education, it fits there. Harvard School, the Ivy League schools. Most of the Ivy League schools were founded on theological. They were Harvard Divinity School before they were ever Harvard Law. But they they, they were founded on, on, on teaching young pastors to go into this world and to teach Native Americans or to teach the world, to teach the new world about Christ and who God is and to connect with God but you've seen over the time the Ivy League schools no longer are they in chair number one or chair number two, but they're more like in chair number three. Where now they're teaching people how God doesn't exist. There's a natural digression that happens in life. We don't evolve forward. I think we digress backwards if we're, if we're not very careful about our lives. What chair are you in? It happens in the business world too. You have this entrepreneur or guy, this guy who steps up and makes this tremendous appeal and vision. And, and it starts as a movement. And it starts with a man. This man has a heart, passionate for, 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 for whatever he's selling. But it moves from being the man to, to, to a movement, from a movement to a machine to a monument, and finally the morgue. Something started so hot. The first generation, they sacrificed, they committed, they gave, they, they, they did without, they, they took cuts and pay, or they didn't draw anything out of the company. And then the second generation, they wouldn't join on until they saw the package. And it was their idea to get ahead. It wasn't for the company. It was for themselves. And finally, when the company begins to fade away and they die, the, the good ones jump ship first and and all of a sudden the company's struggling to figure out they, they can't inflect. There's no inflection. They've lost their ability to regenerate themselves or to reorganize organize themselves because they become turf shepherds. Look at the auto industry today and tell me that this didn't happen right here. It happens in business. It happens in schools. 
It happens in churches. You go, you go to one of the most, most written about churches in the New Testament. You'll find the book, you'll find uh, the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was an amazing church. Six chapters, Paul wrote them. He talked about their love in nearly every chapter. He talked about it again and again. In fact, whenever you, when, you, when you read through Ephesians, you'll find in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love. And your love. It, 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 is, it is amazing how it happens even in the church. It happens, it happens in marriage. You know, you got Captain America when you first get married. Then you got Captain Kangaroo. Then it's Mr. Magoo. It happens. It happens in so many ways. I want to go back to the church because I want to, I want to show you how it happens in Ephesus because they were first known for their love. They had a tremendous love for God. That's how they were known. But all of a sudden you find a couple of decades later, not very long, you can, you can timeline it. Read the book of Revelation. And what does it say about the church at Ephesus? It said it had lost its first love. It had become lukewarm. So they went from being known for their love, hot-hearted in their love, their love for one another, their love for God. It was beautiful. It was powerful. They were hot for God. But all of a sudden they become lukewarm. That's a very sad tale. And we're not talking about centuries We're talking about just a few decades. Now, how many decades are we? Just one. It can happen so subtly when you move from from chair one to chair two to chair three. And the sad part is, and I will be there with with a group from our church that we'll commission in a few moments. I'm going to be in Ephesus next Friday. And we're going to be there on a vision trip. And we're going to get to see the ruins of the city of Ephesus. And we're going to see where there once was a church, but the church is no longer. In fact, according to Operation World, Ephesus and Turkey is the most, has the fewest evangelicals than any other nation in the world. How do you go from being hot, being known for your love, being hot-hearted for God, how do you digress to the point that you're lukewarm only decades away and, and, and who is speaking to you and who is pastoring you but the Apostle John himself leading you, Paul starts you, Timothy passes. I mean, you talk about the heritage. You can have Paul as your pastor, J- Timothy as your second pastor. You can have John writing letters to you. And it can still, you can still be warm, lukewarm, only to find in a few decades you're cold and you've lost your passion. You've lost your interest even in the things of God. This is a sad state to be in. What chair are you sitting in today? What chair will your children say you're sitting in today? Don't compare yourself with yourself. Compare yourself with the Word of God. Compare yourself with the disciples. Compare yourself there. Let the Word of God be your test. I mentioned in a message on September 25th, if you haven't, didn't hear it, you can go back and listen to it again, because I warned us against the sin of presumptuousness. The fact that if we presume because God blessed us in the first decade, that He's automatically going to bless us in the second decade, we are absolutely fooling ourselves. And we're probably at that point already sitting in chair number two. We have to be very careful about what chair we're sitting in 
as a church because there's a big difference between alive churches and dead churches. Dead churches or alive churches, they're, they're, they're different. Live churches have parking problems. Dead churches have plenty of parking. Live churches, members tithe. Dead churches, members tip. Live churches move out in faith. Dead churches operate by facts alone. Live churches give to support missions and dead churches keep money to themselves. Live churches are meeting new people and dead churches only know each other. Live churches evangelize. Dead churches fossilize. Live churches have a fresh breeze blowing through them. But dead churches, they take the breath out of you. I think we have to ask ourselves today, that's a very simple question, what chair am I sitting in? We have to ask ourselves as a family, as a, as a person, as an individual, because it does matter. And we're going to be only as strong as a church as I am as an individual. We, you can hide behind somebody right now if you want to, but in the reality, you're not hiding behind anybody. You're in full view of God and you're in full, full view of your family. You're certainly in full view of your children. We have to ask, what kind of generation am I going to grow up? Am I going to, am I going to develop hard-hearted, sold-out, first-chair children? Or am I going to be kind of straddling the fence and ultimately my children will be over here? It's a question we have to ask. Or, or maybe I'm here, my parents were here, but I'm actually slipping down to chair number three already. What chair are you sitting in? How do, we, how do we know where we are as a church? And how do we know where we are as an individual? I think we have to ask, ask ourselves a simple question. What kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? What kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? What kind of church would this church be if every member prayed like me? Served like me? Gave like me? Really, I mean, we have to ask ourselves that question. It has to be that level of an intensity about it. Because if we can't answer that with a whole heart, that I am in chair number two, identify. Even if you're in chair number three today, identify where you're at. You ever played musical chairs growing up? In a moment, we're going to have a band come back up here, and you're going to have the opportunity to play musical chairs. Where you can move chairs, what chair you're in. But if you're in chair number two and you want to be in chair number one, or you're in chair number three and you want to be in chair number one, I hope you do. You have to ask yourself the question, where am I as a person, as a part of this church? Because as a follower of Christ, you will not automatically reproduce yourself in chair number one. In fact, if you look at the generations that have gone before us, people struggle with this soul digression problem all the way through. If you look at Abraham this great father of, uh, of the nation of Israel, wherever he went, he built an altar and then he dug a well. You watch it. You look at his life. His son Isaac that comes behind him dug a well and he would sometimes build an altar. Jacob that came behind him slipped into chair number three because whenever he would move into a place, he would only build an altar if he got in trouble. What kind of Family, what kind of faith do you have? What, where, where are you on, on this pendulum? Because you can see it moves from commitment to, to compromise to confusion really, really subtly. 
But this is not just an uncommon uh, anomaly that happens out there. It happens in churches and businesses and schools and individuals and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It happened with David. David, what was he known for? He was known to be a man after God's own what? Heart. He had a passion for God. He said in chair number one boldly. He said in prayer number one humbly. Because he had his mistakes and he did mess up. But he was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect in this chair, but he got right. Whenever he got out of line, he got right when he was in this chair. You read Psalm 32, you read Psalm 51, and you hear the heart of his confessions before God. And he had a heart for God and he did not back off of that. Solomon, though, I think he was more in chair number two. You go back in the September messages, I shared a message about Solomon. And how Solomon, he started off so well. He was so strong. He, he, for the first 20 years of his, of his reign, he built the temple of God. $400 million in today's currency is what he built the temple. Makes an $8 million look like pocket change. But he was so committed. But the second 20 years of his life, he, start, he went from wisdom. He went from looking after the things of God. He went from longing for, for that to really more about wealth and pleasure. That's kind of how Solomon lived his life. He went from having a father in chair number one to being in chair number two to Rehoboam. He was a jealous, self-seeking king that followed right behind. You have David who, who built the kingdom, Solomon who played with the kingdom, but Rehoboam, he divided the kingdom. You see the, the digression that happens right there. Take your Bibles, be finding the book of Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 is where we'll be today. And you think, oh, we've been studying through Joshua. You can't study through Joshua and end where we ended last week. Because if you remember last week, last week he gave the call, the commitment. He said, who are you going to serve me? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Unashamedly, unabashedly, he was about serving the Lord. He was saying to the nation of Israel, I'm in chair number one, and I'm going to raise my children to be in chair number one. I want my children to be in chair number one. As for me and my house, we will serve. What about you? Where are, you, where are you at in that, in that calling in there? But we're going to find in, in Joshua chapter 2, excuse me, in Judges chapter 2, we're going to find a different scenario that kind of begins to play out. It's the rest of the story that, that happens in, as, as, the, as the narrative continues on. And so it says in, uh, in Judges chapter 2, verse 6 and 9, it says it like this. It says, 6 to 9, he says, And when Joshua dismissed the people of Israel, they went into their inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen, circle the word seen, we'll come back to that in a moment, all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua was, uh, uh, and Joshua, uh, the, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in uh, timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain Gesh. When you, when, you, when you read the story and you hear the narrative told of Joshua, and you, you think of Joshua as being this mighty warrior, you think of Caleb as being this mighty warrior, 
Again, we named our kids after him. We so much believed that Joshua was in chair number one, and he did not compromise. He was a part of what God did. He experienced it. He touched it. He smelt it. He tasted it. He was the one who stepped into the waters on the dry land. He was the one who crossed over. He was the one. He was a part of it. He experienced it. First-hand account. But don't miss a little phrase in there. Because the phrase in there about the elders and how they lived on past, past Joshua and how they saw the works of God. Who, who's this? These are people that are not the same age as Joshua. They, didn't, they, they, they were the kids that were playing while Dad went off to war to conquer the land. These are the elders that were succeeding Joshua in, in his generation. That was the second generation. You have the first generation of the Joshuas. you got the second generation there. And it's like, who's going, to, who's going to lead out? Well, it's going to be the people who follow him. And they saw God work, but they didn't experience it. There's a difference between seeing and experiencing. We can open the pages of this book and we can see all the great works that God has done, but can we say that God has done it in me? You know, is it one of those things that we start building up this little bit of a distance, this arm's length relationship with God? God, I know our church is doing this, but I'm going to keep an arm's length relationship. I'm going to watch you do it, but I'm not going to be a part of what you're doing. It's a big difference. I say, but you're so close and you can still smell it and you still feel the breeze blowing. Yes, yes, to a point. You're not a part of it. Not a part of it. I want to be a part of what God's doing. I want to be in chair number one. I want my kids in chair number two. I'm in chair number one. I don't want them in chair number two. And so... Even when I think about my own kids and I think about their growing up and I think about their own struggles in their own life and where they're at, I think, oh my goodness, I want my children to be in chair number one. I want Caleb and Joshua and Jordan to be in chair number one so badly. I want them to experience God. So I love it whenever they're a part of the church plan. I love it whenever they're making sacrifices and they're bringing ideas about how we can sacrifice as a family. I, I love it when they go on global adventure trips. Instead of hearing the stories about people getting back and and seeing the slideshows of what God did, I want my kids in it, smelling it, breathing it, touching it, living it. Because I don't want my kids in chair number two. And it happens, again, so subtly. At the same time, it can happen so quickly. Why do you think that we're ramping up as we're expanding our campus? Why do you think we're ramping up adding a a junior high, call it slash middle school, whatever you want to call it, minister to our pastoral team because we don't want one generation, one one period of time to miss a relationship with God. We want them experiencing God in the moment. That's why Caleb Gabrella will be presented to you in a little bit. Because the reality is, and this is the life principle we've got to own in this generation, that Christianity is one generation removed from extinction. And I'm not trying to throw up alarms and red flags, but just look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just look at David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. Just look at these guys. They went from one to two to three so subtly and so quickly. 
Because you would think, oh, by all means, if Joshua is your, is your leader and, and, and the elders were right there seeing everything that God did as, as they were growing up playing warrior in the front yards as dad went off to war and saw God conquer the lands, and, and you would think that they would be able to pass that. Just, it's just one generation down, but don't miss it. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. Judges chapter 2, we finished in verse 9. Look uh, there in verse Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. I mean, they died. And there arose another generation after them that did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals. That's a a pagan God. They had lost connection with the real God, one generation removed. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods among the gods of the peoples who, who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. What a sad tale. What a horrible story. What an end. I mean, God has done so much in that first generation. And yet all of a sudden, two generations removed, they're gone. They went from experiencing God to seeing God to not even knowing God. How does that happen? How do I prevent that? Let's not even worry about how it happened. How do I stop that trend from happening? As a father and as as one of the grandfathers someday, 10, 20 years from now, but how do, how do I make sure that my grandkids are not in chair number three and my children are not in chair number two? But how do I make sure that they're in chair number one? How many of y'all want your kids in chair number one? Raise your hand. How many of y'all are in chair number one? Don't raise your hand. Do, do, do you know where you're at right now? Or can, can you pigeonhole yourself? Can you figure out where you're at? There's a couple of things that I think we must... We must do must moves, if you will, that we must make in our lives to make sure that our children are in chair number one. The first thing is, it's not rocket science, is that we must model first chair living. We must get in first chair, not get out of first chair, not waver from first chair. We must stay in first chair. I want to experience God. I want God to be in and around. See, we teach what we know. We reproduce what we are. What are we? Because we might sit there and teach Bible school and we might teach at Adventure Day Camp and we might even go on a mission trip every now and then. But I want to know, what are we reproducing? Well, look at who we are. And don't back away from that. It happens again so subtly. There's example after example through Scripture. Think about Abraham and Lot. That was a time of, of contention, if you will, when Abraham and Lot were kind of... And they, so they split and they went different ways. As they went different ways, Abraham took Lot to the, to the, to the edge, and he said, okay, where, where do you want? And Lot looked towards Sodom. He looked out towards Sodom. He said, I want that land. That land's fertile and green. That land is plush. But he also went to a place that was named after what it was about. Sodom, Sodomy. That's where, that's where, that's where Lot went. He went there for a while. In fact, he got to the point that he even pitched his tent. Towards Sodom. Kind of gets a little bit comfortable. 
He's moving away from Father Abraham's leading. He's moving away from where he should be. He finds himself in chair number two, maybe even straddling the line. Maybe he's even in chair number three a little bit. I don't know where he was. But he was clearly slipping because eventually you find in chapter 19, a few chapters later, you find him sitting in the gates. Now what was that? That was the equivalent of a city councilman. So he goes from looking towards Sodom to living towards Sodom to living in Sodom. And you don't think he got caught up in that? You don't think he... This is one generation. This is how far he slips in one generation. He got so much caught up in that that God had to send angels to rescue Lot. And you don't even want to go into the story of what he offered the demonic Sodomites of Sodom and Gomorrah. Read the story. It's sad, it's pathetic that he would offer up his own girls to them. Finally, whenever the, the kind of the story's kind of coming to a close and God's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah what he does to Sodom and Gomorrah, he finally, the angels have to reach down and pull Lot out of Sodom. You don't believe me? Look at this, look at this passage in Genesis chapter 19. And the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. That's a very sad statement. When God himself sends the angels of God to be and to rescue and to help, you would think that that would be enough to get me back in chair number one. But see, when you get into that state, it's a very unhealthy state. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters and by the hand of the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and they set him outside the city. See, your, your talk talks and your walk walks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. How are you living? Where are you in the sequence of these chairs? Maybe the first place you might want to look is look in your marriage. Because that's one of the places that you can make sure that you're in chair number one. How hot is your marriage? Because again, it's a natural digression. It will go away. It will not stay in chair number one just because. But how passionately in love are you with your, with your spouse? And how, how compatible are you guys whenever you're growing through the faith together? Because if you look at Lot's story, you know what happens to his wife. She can't leave Sodom. She turns around, looks back, and becomes a pillar of salt. It's a sad tale and. Genesis 19. So where are you in your marriage? Well, here's, here's another thing. Why don't you show the next generation your inward and your outward self aligned? Make sure there's an alignment in your, in your life. Make sure that your life is saying and doing what your lips are saying and doing. Kids see duplicity earlier than we think. They see the, they see the hypocrisy. You might fool them for the first, second, third, fourth year. But they start making the connection by the time they're five. Just exactly where mom and dad are. Will they be so bold as to call you a hypocrite? No, they won't. But they'll start forming values at five years and earlier that you modeled for them. Attitudes, actions, words. What chair are you setting in? Show, show your generosity. That's another way that you can make sure that you model first chair. 
You know, we don't have these opportunities very often. And I, to some degree, I say thank God that we don't do an Envision campaign every two or three, four years. One every ten years, once a decade is good enough for me. And we're going into the second decade, and we're going into this Envision. But here's an opportunity for you to sit down with your family and your kids and to be able to say to them, guys, we can't do everything we want to do because we're doing things we need to do right now. And I've, I've heard stories of people selling motorcycles and not starting into to ventures of, of work. And, uh, and, 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 you know, things get tough. I even heard of another family that they've already suffered a cut in pay. It's not easy. But show your children somehow that there's an element of generosity about you that's unmistakable. You've heard, you've read, hopefully you've read Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. He says, lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't infringe on their standard of living. That is so true. Lukewarm people, they'll give. They'll give to the church. They believe in giving to charities. They believe in helping people out. They're going to live in that zone for a while. They're going to, they're going to give. But no, 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 don't ask me to change my standard of living. Don't infringe on my vacations. Don't infringe on my pleasures. Don't infringe on my fun. That's lukewarm living. And if, if what Chan said there is accurate, what will the next generation give? Or will they even give it all? Probably it will be an option of faith. Instead of it being a hot-hearted, God, I'm all in, I'm all for this, this is not about me, it's about you, and I'm, I want to live for you, and I want to be in chair number one. What chair are you setting in? Model it for the next generation. Because I don't want the next generation to rise up and not know God nor the things of God. Number two, be a part, be a part of what God's doing. What's he doing? Look around. Listen, I'll tell you right now, this Envision campaign is not about, it's not about because we want to jumpstart something. It's not about because we just want to, to do this. It's not about that at all. We're responding to what God's been doing. This whole orphan care ministry and all that kind of we're just responding to what God's already doing in our church family. This whole global work that we're doing and going to Central Asia this week and, and, and West Africa and on and on, this is, this is, this is not about, about just taking pleasure trips. This is about what God's been doing in our church for the first 10 years and us just responding to what He's doing. That's how you know God's will. It's not what is God's will for your life. It's what is God doing. Now get in on it. And if God wasn't adding families to our church, we wouldn't be adding space. It's really simple math. But because God's adding families, because we need space, we are going to get in on what God is doing. It's exactly how Jesus lived out his life. John chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. We respond to what God does when we get in on it. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Himself, so shows Him all that He Himself is doing. The greater works than these will be, will He show Him so that you may marvel. We get to see the marvelous works of God when we get in on what God's doing. When I think about Joshua and his generation, 
One of the things that he did is he came out of the river and he gathered 12 stones. When they crossed over their, their challenge, he gathered 12 stones and he put them on the bank. And he remembered that. Around this room are 300 dogwood trees. And we're saying to, to you, if you're part of Grace Point Church, if you're saying, I'm in on this, baby. I'm giving, uh, I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give today. I, I don't know. I'm going to give over the next three years. I'm in on it. What we want you to do is not take 12 stones out of the river because we don't have a river to cross. We've been talking about planning for the next generation. We want you to take a dogwood tree home. We want you to take it home and we want you to plant it in your yard. But we don't want you to do it on your own. We want you to do it as a family. We want you to put it in the ground. And we want you, you want to say, kids, as we're doing this, well, this is a symbolic statement of, we're planting something that's going to grow. That's going to go heavenward. And just like we want to plant you, we want you to go heavenward. We want you to be in chair number one. We don't want you to be in chair number two. Tell them that as you go through that process. Do it this afternoon. Make it a part of you. Another quote on trees. It says, we can learn a lot from trees. They're always grounded, but never stop reaching heavenward. I want my next generation to be firmly planted in chair number one, but always reaching heavenward. Let this be a time that you this afternoon with your family get together and say, this is something of God. I want to be a part of it. I want to be in on it. What we're going to do is the band's going to begin to sing, and what we're going to play is musical chairs. Whatever chair you're in right now, where are you on this? If you're not in chair number one, when the music starts to play, you stand, you respond, whatever. You can kneel and pray. You can, you can turn around and sit back down and pray, whatever it is. But we're also going to have time where the offering will today, both offerings are tithe offering and envision offering. If you have it to give, come and put it in the treasure chest at these tables. And if you haven't yet made your commitment, put your commitment in the treasure chest. And then grab a puzzle piece as we did last week and come up here and put it on the board. This is your time to decide what chair you're going to be in. If you're not in chair number one and your generation behind you is not in chair number one, do what you need to do right now.